This is The Guardian. Brothers, welcome to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Derby Day delights and history made. Over 47,000 watched Arsenal beat Tottenham at the Emirates, while a record Anfield crowd watched the Jess Park show. If words could represent a shrug, Gareth Taylor's It Is What It Is says it all as Chelsea pile more misery on Manchester City, while Manchester United and Aston Villa continued their strong starts to the season. We'll dissect all the weekend action, take your questions, and that's today's Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Well, what a panel we have today. The newly inked Susie Rack. Talk us through the pain. Oh, it's fine. It's nothing compared to childbirth. That was like, I had my first one in June, uh, pre-Euros, unrelated to football. And I was pleasantly surprised. So yeah, these two that are just uh, line drawings were a breeze. Describe the new art for anyone who's not taken to social media to see. (laughs) So I've got um, from the England squad announcement, there was a really nice bit of artwork from an artist called Kellyanna. And I've got one of the players on my forearm. And then I've got the fantastic (laughs) cartoon from uh, David Squires on the back of my arm, which is a little like lion from the free lions badge celebrating like chloe kelly in a little bra waving its shirt in the air um it's very very funny and very cute love that absolutely love that uh jesse parker humphreys a last minute call up but an absolute delight to see you i know i was trying to think of like a footballing analogy for this i guess because i'm normally producing and it made me think of uh, Portland Thorns once had all their goalkeepers injured, so they had to put their goalkeeping coach on the bench. I feel like maybe that's that's what kind of what's going on here in a podcast. <laughs> Brilliant. Just to give everybody some context, poor Robin Cowan has uh, got the dreaded nasty nursery lurgy that tends to go around uh, this time of year, unfortunately. Get well soon, Robin, but delighted to have Jesse Parker Humphreys. And I, I promote you more to, to manager or assistant manager rather than goalkeeping coach. <laughs> Not that goalkeeping coach is below, but you know what I mean. I am terrible at goalkeeping, so that might be wise. <laughs> Marva Creel, now then, Derby Day winner Anfield. Does it get any better than that as an Everton fan? I don't think it does. And we haven't seen many of them over the years. Um, I haven't seen many wins just generally, actually, over the last few years. So that's always a positive. Excellent stuff. Right, well, we'll discuss that in a second. But let's start at the Emirates, shall we? A 4-0 win for Arsenal. Goals from Beth Mead, Vivian Miedemar and Rafaela. But the experience off the pitch was very important as well. 47,367 was the exact record attendance. Um, Susie, we know you're a lifelong Arsenal fan. What did that day mean to you? Uh, Well, simply taking the record off Spurs was the thing that I was most looking forward to from the day. Uh, speaking non-journalistically and as an Arsenal fan. So spiteful. (laughs) Uh, Like, it really annoyed me that, you know, we have this incredible rich history in women's football and Spurs have come along and taken the the record crowds. That that really, really grated on me. Um, So it was good. Um, But I thought Rianne Skinner was excellent afterwards. She said... um, 
that it was a record that stood for too long and that it was great to see and that everyone is everyone in football is sort of you know driving for this together and like I really liked that because it's like I hadn't really thought about it like that it is true it has taken too long to break this record and you know she caveated that with the fact that Covid obviously intervened after those really great crowds at the start of 2019 where you had the record at, at the Spurs Stadium and you had uh, Stamford Bridge hosting Chelsea and Man City hosting Etihad on the opening weekends and that kind of thing. Um, and we've not really had those those big games since um, built on the scale that we've had. The mood around Arsenal was great. I mean, it was like, um, like the build-up to some of the England games during the Euros. It's the closest I've come to... Um, that kind of vibe at league level and I get the impression that uh, Anfield wasn't too dissimilar as well that there was a real real buzz around the size of that crowd there as well which I I had heard wasn't going to be as good as it was but yeah like real electric atmosphere and just a real I think relief all round that we were finally breaking it again and sort of catching up on where we were pre-pandemic yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually, Jesse, because we've seen big crowds during the Euros and, and across Europe as well. But it feels as if this shows how much the WSL is growing, particularly when you look at the fact that last season you couldn't even get 10,000 at Arsenal against Chelsea. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of credit has to go to Arsenal as well for maybe rethinking how they market some of these things. Because I think in the past, they've maybe put games at the Emirates and not necessarily shouted about it in in the way that they have really shouted about this one. And Arsenal as a club had a fantastic Euros with, with England winning, you know, to have uh, an Arsenal player captaining England, you know, an Arsenal player winning player of the tournament Obviously, the pull of Leah Williamson and Beth Mead is, is particularly particularly special. But but even beyond that, you know, I think it also maybe speaks to how the good feeling around Arsenal as a club on the men's and women's side is kind of coming together. And I think what's been really amazing to watch is um, this might come as a surprise to some people who know me, but my family are all Arsenal fans. Um, but you know, to see people who've kind of been lifelong Arsenal fans. <laughs> <laughs> that felt like a sound effect. <laughs> Someone pressed that. It was just Susie Rack. Insert gasp here. <laughs> but, you know, to see people who, who've maybe, you know, who followed Arsenal their whole lives but not necessarily bought into into the women's game to to be at the Emirates, um, you know, to have bought season tickets to, to the women's team, I think that's just, you know, testament to the amount of good feeling around around the club and, and around North London right now. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let, let's dig into the game, shall we, Marva? Jonas Eidevel changed things up with his starting lineup. It was obviously a disappointing midweek draw against Ajax in the Champions League, but Caitlin Ford replaced Stina Blackstenius up top. Why do you think he did that? What hadn't been working previously? Um, I think just what Ford gives us is that extra kind of runner in behind. Um, that they don't always have. And I thought her and Miedemar worked so well together um, in this game. They kind of acted as a, as a 4-4-2 for a lot of it, really, especially out of possession in their pressing. Um, and I think that level of intensity, especially for an occasion like this, where they needed to show something after that that result against Ajax, um, just worked so well for them. Obviously, it worked for the second goal, which obviously we can criticise Spurs for, but as much as we can criticise Spurs, that level of intensity that, that Arsenal brought, there was just nothing that Spurs could do all game. 
Yeah, it felt a bit inevitable, didn't it, Susie, from the minute that Beth Mead curled that ball in uh, after just five minutes. It was a really fast start for them and and you kind of knew that the floodgates were going to open. Yeah, as soon as that goal went in, you sort of knew where it was going, which was a bit disappointing, really, because I expected a little bit more from Spurs. They look really like quite well organised uh, under Ian Skinner last season, particularly at the start of the season. They obviously held Arsenal to that, well, I say held Arsenal to that one all draw. Arsenal held them to the one all draw like they were uh, leading that game and uh, Midema popped up in the, the 94th minute or something to to head in really late at the Hive and conceded Arsenal's first points of the season. So like I, I was sort of hoping that it would be a little bit more more of a contest. Um I agree with Marva that I think like part of that was just Arsenal was so good it was very hard for them to like find any rhythm. The like I think it was like seventy percent possession or something that Arsenal had in that game, you know. Spurs didn't really see much of the ball at all. I think one shot on target as well. It was in the first half a really tame effort. Yeah, like you can't take anything away from Arsenal's performance, but I thought Spurs really disappointed. Um, it's really good to see uh, Midema scoring um, again because she sort of, I mean, obviously shifting back into the 10 is going to shift their role a little bit, but towards the end of last season, I think she struggled for goals a little bit. Um, and yeah, it's good to see her get two. The timing of the goals, I think, was quite significant. Obviously, the early Mead goal made a difference, but then you've got Spurs sort of hanging on in there for much of that first half. And I think if they'd gone in 1-0 at half time, I think we would have seen a different side in the second half. But conceding that a second goal, 44th minute, I think it was, really kind of killed the game entirely and uh, any any hope of a, a fight back of any kind. Um, the third and fourth goals from set pieces, really badly defended against. Um, you know, they need to be doing better than that. Um, they should have learned from last season that letting Arsenal get on the end of set pieces is not a good idea. No, exactly. And I think Rianne Skinner will be quite disappointed, Jesse, because Tottenham are a team that we expect to be pushing after what they achieved last season. But they seem to really struggle against top opposition. And I know it's only two games in, but Rianne needs her side really to be a bit more competitive in these kind of matches, doesn't she, if they're going to do something this season? Yeah, I think it's kind of always been a bit of a given that Rahan Skinner's Spurs team are maybe more defensively minded than they are attacking minded. And and I don't think that has to be an issue. But then when you see the errors that get made in, I mean, really all, all four of the Arsenal goals, I think you can kind of put down to, to defensive errors. Even Beth Mead's is a fantastic finish, but there is absolutely nobody in, you know, the, the hole Beth Mead runs into is enormous. And that's when you've got a problem, right? Because if you're making defensive errors against the best teams, you've got no room for the fact that you're only going to have, you know, one shot on target, whatever. I think they racked up the mighty total of 0.06 expected goals for this game. So I think it's a bit of a, it's going to be an interesting one to see how she figures out because I think when you, the Arsenal game is, you know, it would have been amazing if Spurs could have given Arsenal really a good game, but I don't think necessarily this result was a massive surprise. But when you look at it in context of the Leicester game, where they also they scored twice, but both of them were kind of these 30-yard ridiculous shots, well, you start to think, well, you know, how is this going to add up across the season? Like, where are the goals going to come from? Where is the creativity going to come from? Because it certainly wasn't in evidence at the Emirates. No, it wasn't. It's going to be fascinating, isn't it? Uh, right, let's move on to the second derby of the weekend. Marva, 
this is your moment. <laughs> it definitely is. I'm not going to sing every week. Um, Everton going to Anfield, winning the first WSL Merseyside derby for two seasons, a 3-0 victory in the end, totally in control of this match. Pretty good to have Liverpool back in the league, isn't it? I know. I mean, I was I was quietly confident. I can't lie. I was quietly confident. I thought people were sort of underestimating Everton a little bit after that that loss against West Ham. And I think people were, maybe this is my Everton bias coming out, but I think people were maybe slightly overhyping the Liverpool win against, against Chelsea, um, as big of a win as it was. But no, it was, I was, what I was surprised about was how well we played and how like our domination of the ball was just incredible and our composure as well to just, as soon as we started, we were just passing it around like it was absolutely nothing. And I think as Everton fans, we've been waiting for that for a while. You know, last season was a shambles to to put it nicely, really. Um, so to see this newly formed Everton that's actually just calm on the ball and, and knows what they're doing and everyone knows their roles and, and working to a clear plan, it was like, what is this? I haven't seen this in years. So it was great to see. It kind of became the Jess Park show, didn't it, Susie? She scored that wonderful individual goal, set up Hannah Benison's third. How surprised were you that Manchester City let her go out on loan? Not overly surprised, given that, you know, they've got Lauren Hemp and Chloe Kelly taking up those those front-wide positions. Um, you know, she's looked good when she has played for City, albeit briefly, but like when you've got players of that quality in front of you, you sort of need a young player like that to get to get some game time. So I'm not surprised she's gone out on loan. I'm like in a, in a sense, I'm surprised maybe she's not pushed for a, a permanent move because with young players like that in front of her, um, her time at City is going to be limited. Whether she stays there or not is is a question. I suppose if there's a big injury to one of those players, then that changes things a bit. But Everton's business has been interesting, I thought, because the, the decision to sign a whole load of like young players, young English players on loan, I think is shown in this game to be a really good one. Jess Park, Aggie Beaver Jones, uh, even the goalkeeper Emily Ramsey from Man United, um, who was on the bench. Like these are really, really good young England youth team players um, that really aren't getting much of a look in at club and bringing them into a uh, to a team like Everton where they're going to play and are very, very hungry to prove themselves is a really, really smart move. And Jess Park, I mean, what a talent. Like, I think anyone who's uh, watched her at youth team level or for City when she has played has been a bit excited. But yeah, the the composure for the goal was just phenomenal, like real beautiful stuff. Um, and yeah, real, real exciting to see her actually hopefully playing week in week out yeah we will focus on Liverpool in, in a second with you Jesse but Marva you tweeted out my favorite Everton trios in the last 10 years Barkley Delafeu Lukaku Richarlison Dominic Calvert-Lewin and James Gio Benison Park Connor wants to know do Everton have the most interesting attack to watch in the league this season? Park, Benison and Geo, so young and so much potential. Um, most interesting is maybe pushing it a little bit and maybe <laughs> so is my tweet. I might have to swiftly delete that in a, in a few weeks. It might be a bit premature, but um, no, definitely very, very interesting front three. I mean, even just the fact that we could bring those two players off the bench in this game. Obviously, Gio's only just joined, but um, 
when I was looking at the bench and we were doing so well, I mean, Christensen, I thought, had a great game, sort of slightly further up than she usually plays. And then Snowy's, I thought, as well, did really well. Could have had sort of two goals herself. And then to see, like, oh, wait a minute, we've got Benison and Jared to just come off the bench and add to our creativity, which, you know, sort of last season when we really only kind of had Duggan to be sort of leading that line, that's such a huge improvement um, to have those options and such young options and to see them all combined for that third goal was was really um, exciting to watch as well because, yeah, Gio's pace to get there and press in the first place when she was the only one in their half and that um, ending up in a goal. And I thought Park's uh, awareness to, to square that ball was there had been a few times where our players had taken a shot rather than squaring it. Um, so sort of to see that all play out was like, oh, we might, we might have something here. So I know there's only been two games and and a transfer window to assess Brian Sorensen, but what are you thinking about his tenure so far? I'm impressed. I mean, obviously, yeah, it's only been sort of two games in a preseason, but I thought even in preseason, um, within the first few games, we looked like we knew what we were doing. I think last season there was a lot of kind of quick one-touch football um, to try and get us up the pitch. Maybe that was kind of out of panic a little bit, whereas the difference in, in this season is that we're so composed on the ball um, and it's interesting to play so many kind of players out of position almost but to their advantage I thought Gabby George had a really good game at left wing back um, I thought Bjorn did really well at defensive midfield um, Christian like I said further up the pitch sort of playing as a, a left winger right you know behind the striker um, so all these kind of little tweaks and changes which under some managers you'd see as a sign of kind of, oh God, they don't know, you know, what's going on. This is a complete sort of panic. Um, whereas this seems so sort of composed and, and everyone is aware of their roles, which is, like I said, quite, quite refreshing to see. So hopefully it continues because, yeah, it's quite, quite exciting for once. <laughs> I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. I can hear the excitement in your voice and it it would be after the season that they had last year, it would be really good to see Everton kind of pushing the traditional top three a little bit more for sure. We need to talk about Liverpool though, Jesse. It, I mean, it feels like it's a little bit back down to earth with, with a bump after the high of beating Chelsea last week. Marva mentioned there that that, that result was overhyped. Listen, as a neutral, I don't think it was overhyped. I think they managed to stay in that game and uh, and thoroughly deserved the three points in the end. If you can frustrate Chelsea like that, you fully deserve the win. But Matt Beard knows that this is a, a marathon, not a sprint, doesn't he? Yeah, if there's anyone kind of in charge of the team who, you know, will be prepared to to be aware of what competing in the WSL is going to take, it is someone like Matt Beard. And I think that's why it's so good to see him back in charge at Liverpool. I guess, again, what was kind of interesting for me in this game and looking at it in the context of the Chelsea game was how much Liverpool were able to create going forward. And they actually created quite a lot, but only after they were 3-0 down. So it was almost like they kind of just switched on, right, like in the last five minutes of the game, which was a bit of a strange thing. And, and you know, obviously these are very different situations compared to kind of playing Chelsea and you're going to want to sit back and and then playing at Anfield. And I thought it was noticeable how much space Everton were able to find to, to put those kind of exciting young attackers to run into. And I mean, as a Chelsea fan, I was like a bit jealous because I was like, I think this game might have gone differently if we'd had that much space. But that's what happens also when you move these games. You know, that's part of the adjustment for these teams that, you know, the pitches are, are bigger. You do have to think about your spacing in different ways. And it does become this slightly funny 
you know, asterisk on some of these games where you're like, well, this, when the situation's changed, when the context has changed around it, you're going to see teams have to play in slightly different ways. And I felt like maybe Liverpool hadn't quite, you know, twigged in that way of, of how they needed to get themselves positionally. But look, this is a team which one already has three points on the board, um, which is kind of what matters the most from the Chelsea game. And, and two has, has more than enough players to, I think, kick on over the next couple of weeks. Mm. We shall see what Matt Beard's side uh, can do. Right, that's it for part one of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. In part two, we'll head to Kings Meadow as Chelsea picked up their first points of the season. Welcome back to part two of the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. Manchester City had more problems than just their social media admin thinking that they were playing in North London as Chelsea beat them 2-0 at Kings Meadow to leave them rooted to the bottom of the table. I mean, North London, South London, there's only a river separating it. Why would you know the difference? Uh, It meant that Chelsea became the first side to beat City three consecutive times in the WSL. A first half goal from Frank Kirby, a Maramielda penalty uh, gave Chelsea their first three points of the season. Um, Susie, fair to say this was definitely an improvement from both sides on their opening weekend, but but still lots of work to do. Yeah, I mean, it was an improvement, but despite Chelsea winning and winning quite comfortably, like they made it really uncomfortable for themselves. Um, like Emma Hayes said, oh, you know, we played ourselves into trouble a lot and uh, and made it hard. And they, they did. Um, it didn't... It didn't look like Chelsea of last season, this like swaggering, all-conquering side, never-say-die attitude. It was like quite a disjointed performance. It was like like when um, Sam Kerr had first come into the team and nothing quite clicked um, at the start. But yet they get the win. And I think that's partly A, because City are incredibly disjointed and dodgy. Like If there is a plan, they don't know what it is. and of the two teams that didn't look amazing, Chelsea were far more coherent. But like that, that's the best I can say. I mean, they, they, it wasn't a, a, a nice Chelsea performance. And I know Emma Hayes said before the game that she didn't necessarily care about performance. It's about winning these games and she doesn't care if a game looks pretty or not. And I'm never overly worried by Chelsea either. You know, I, I, I know that they're always going to iron out these sort of early season um like weaknesses uh when when you've got Emma Hayes in charge but it just it just wasn't flowing and I'm not sure they've got the right personnel in the right positions as well you know they've got so many players that play at number 10 traditionally and they're sort of trying to shoehorn all these players into a starting 11 and I don't think they've quite figured out how to to make it work um yeah, I was disappointed in Chelsea's performance perhaps more than I was City's because I sort of expected City to be shambolic. But um, Chelsea's performance was fine. Wow, that was a, there was a, quite a long pause there. So I'm going to take this to the Chelsea fan in Jesse Parker Humphreys and say, was your performance just fine? I think I would go with fine, but I think I'm more positive than Susie about it. 
is the gap to fine slightly more reduced? Yeah, I'm going to go, it was fine. Just one, one, no gap needed. <laughs> but, you know, maybe, maybe for me, it's just, you know, the trauma of having to play Manchester City. The fact that we kind of were comfortable 2-0 winners, I'll take that like every day of the week. Um, this is a City team who still have players who can, who can and will hurt teams. And you kind of saw that in the, in the first half, Bunny Shaw just barreling through Chelsea's defence on, on a number of occasions. But I think really once Chelsea took the lead, the game felt done. And, you know, for almost the entirety of the second half, you didn't ever really feel like Manchester City were, were going to equalise. And I think Emma Hayes deserves some some credit for that, for, you know, switching up her defence, for going with the back four, using Mielder and, and Eriksen as, as her fullbacks to kind of shut down Hemp and Kelly. And, and I think that that worked really well. You know, it was notable that... City's attacking thrust was was only coming predominantly through through Bunny Shaw. You barely noticed Hemp at all in, in particular in this game. I definitely agree. The attack, I think, needs some things to iron out. It feels like Sam Kerr's season hasn't really got started. Um, although, you know, if her goal last offside goal last week had maybe been given, we'd, we'd probably be talking about that slightly differently. And these are kind of the fine margins in football, aren't they? I don't know whether Kirby playing in this more central 10 position behind her is a bit strange to the two of them obviously in their uh, bonanza goal scoring season Kirby played to her right and I think that's okay Chelsea you know they do start season slow Emma Hayes likes to tweak things uh, they like to figure things out it'll be interesting to see they've obviously got this midweek game against West Ham which will put them if they were to win on the same number of points as Arsenal but Arsenal would have the game in hand and I think that's going to be a really interesting thing psychologically uh, as the season goes although of course if Chelsea don't win then Arsenal's advantage gets even bigger. So I think the West Ham game um, will be interesting to see in terms of the direction Chelsea are moving. You're right to mention Mielda and Eriksen. They were brilliant. Um, and Emma Hayes, after the game, was like particularly praising their performance, uh, shutting down Kelly and Hemp. And it, like we can't not mention Lauren James as well, who was like phenomenally good um I mean we've all known that she's like a prodigious talent um you know for a very long time I thought she's the best like naturally talented women's footballer I've seen since Kelly Smith doesn't it just show though that that Emma Hayes was right to wait until she was fully ready oh completely and it's not even about being fully ready it's about um Chelsea as a as a team and the way Emma Hayes puts it is the level there is so high and so much higher than than anywhere else the way they train and the way they play that for any player coming into that environment it's going to take time regardless of where they come from and she said look at Kadisha Buchanan like look at her first game last week not the best game in the world concedes the penalty is struggling to get into the rhythm of the league and the team. But she's come from Lyon and she's a, what, five-time European champion. Like, she's a very good player. But the standards that are demanded at Chelsea take a little bit of time to get used to. And obviously, then you've got the natural, like, new team gelling uh, issues too. So most players that Emma Hayes signs won't slot into the team straight away um, unless they're a Sam Kerr or a Khadija Buchanan who are experienced enough and trusted enough to be able to do that. Like most of the players she signs are the, the Lauren Jameses of the world who who will be bedded in very, very slowly. Um, and I think, you know, that's a conversation that she has with them when they're joining, that it is, it's not going to be a walk in the park, that you are going to have to uh, work hard to get up to the level that we're at. And then, then you will get your chance. Um, and the fact that she's played two games back to back, started, starred, 
um, is like very, very telling and testament to that strategy. We should mention uh, Mara Mielder, actually, because it was her first WSL start since March 2021 at right back for Chelsea uh, and her first WSL goal since the 11th of October 2020, which, by the way, also happened to be a penalty against Manchester City. Uh, Now, Marva, City are an enigma this season in many ways, as is Gareth Taylor, in my opinion. I'm not 100% sure if my manager came out after a game and said, it is what it is, whether I would be particularly enthralled by that, motivated by that. I thought it was a really strange comment to make. And and as I said at the start of, of the pod, it felt like a shrug in words. Yeah, completely. I would not be happy if that was my manager. Um, I think particularly given how the game went in the sense that I think City was sort of architects of their own downfall, really. They, they started so strong in that first half and... I think Chelsea were were lucky to go in at, at 1-0, really. Um, and what City were doing so well was, like Jesse said, sort of pressing from the front with with Bunny Shaw. Also, Bunny Shaw managing to sort of drop back and really sort of bully that midfield even as well, um, where I think Chelsea's weakness lied a little bit. And then sort of when that, that goal went in, other than the, the Coombs um, effort, which obviously was an incredible save by Berger, but other than that, it was... They just sort of stopped and all the things they were doing well with with being aggressive in their press from the front, just playing it into to shore at all, um, just sort of stopped in the second half. And I don't know whether that is a mentality issue, which makes the, the comments afterwards even worse to just sort of say it is what it is, because that doesn't exactly boost their mentality for the next game. Um, or if it was a tactical thing, which is also a bit worrying, because you just think if there was something that was working really well, um, why would you just stop it sort of completely? It was a bit baffling, really, because I thought, um, yeah, they were much improved in that that first half compared to their, their first game. So, yeah, strange all around. <laughs> yeah, the other thing that like surprised me is Gareth Taylor in the press conference afterwards went on the idea that people would be jumping on the mistakes of of uh, of, of players, like, you know, some of the defending wasn't great for those goals. And the fact that they've got all these new players to bed in and that that's, you know, then it's going to take time and things like that. And those were, those were the two things that he sort of went on, you know, that players make mistakes, everyone makes mistakes. We've got to be super careful that we're not jumping on it. And then also, you know, it's going to take time for us to find a, a rhythm and stuff with with all these new players. Although there's plenty of teams or a lot of new players who don't seem to be having the same problems. But I thought it was interesting because I don't think anyone was necessarily leaping on the mistakes. They were, they were mistakes and they shouldn't have happened. And it's like still quite early in the season. When you've got new players, those kind of things happen. But for me, the bigger issue was the the lack of a reaction to conceding. There was none. Um, that like that for me was the big issue. The fact that you know, well, there were no changes to try and shift them out of the sort of like little slump they had gone into after conceding. There was. Uh, there was no like sort of tactical difference uh, that was very noticeable. If like if anything, they sort of gave up. Um, whereas you sort of expect a fight at one nil. Um, so for me, that was what was the concerning thing, and that was what he didn't answer in the press conference. <laughs> the fact that there, you know, there was there was no real plan, and like what is shocking for me about City is that, like the talent on the pitch is so good they should be doing better. Um, like, they good moments in the first half. That should be the norm, minimum. Like, they've got a really, really talented squad. 
they don't look like they really understand what their collective role is. And that for me is the issue. And that's where the question falls on the manager, not the players for those individual mistakes in my book. And like, uh, yeah, I think it was interesting that he sort of shifted the blame onto people commenting rather than, you know, what was happening on the pitch. Mm, bit of deflection. Uh, they've got a little bit of time before they're back in action in the WSL, 16th of October. Uh, they will host Leicester City at home and, you know, no offence to, to Leicester City fans, you would expect City to win on paper. If they don't, then there's a big problem. But that's just a hypothetical question. So let's wait and see a couple of weeks, shall we? Right, let's head to East London now. See, I know my north, south, east and wests. Uh, Manchester United beat West Ham 2-0 thanks to goals from Lucia Garcia and Hannah Blundell. Um, Susie, Garcia's made a really bright start to life in a United shirt. She seems like a great addition to that right-hand side. Yeah, really excellent and a really good first game. Getting a goal in this one, obviously a big boost to the start of her campaign um, in England. Um, what was interesting for me was that the goal scorers weren't the expected goal scorers in this uh, for United, um, but also that they were scored in second half where, like generally speaking, United have come out all guns blazing and then sort of petered off a little bit and uh, and lost a bit of energy. Um, and it was the opposite in this game. And for me, that was the more interesting thing because... I didn't think uh, West Ham looked awful. I thought they looked they looked all right. They looked, you know, fairly well organised, decent side, had their moments. But there was a patience to Man United um, and a building through the game that, like, I've, I don't think we've necessarily seen from them regularly. Obviously, two games in, we can't say it's regular yet. But um, and last week they scored the four in the first half and then did exactly what I've just said they didn't do in this game. But um, you know, the fact that it was uh, Garcia and uh, Hannah Blundell getting the goals and, you know, not the likes of Katie Zeller, Melatoon, Alessia Russo, uh, Leah Galton, you know, the more traditional goal scorers, um, just speaks to um, the quality of the team and the way they're playing together. Um, yeah, there's like, I like Mark Skinner. I think he's a great manager and there's a real, real sort of logic to the way they play. And you can see that they're all like invested in what he's trying to do and yeah like for me as I said in the preview episode there's no better time for them to grab the third Champions League spot if there is one like who knows if Arsenal screw up against Ajax midweek and the third place ends up going to Italy or something because their teams do better or, or something like that uh, that would be hilarious. That would be very annoying. It would be pretty funny, wouldn't it, if if England lose their third spot? It wouldn't be funny. It would be annoying. <laughs> if England lose their third spot and United finish third for the first time, I mean, it would be frankly hilarious. That would be the most United in the WSL thing ever. <laughs> it so would. Oh, that would well, it's, it's, it's very Spursy. If Spurs were to be up there, to be fair... <laughs> Um, I mean, joint top of the league with Manchester United and Arsenal. Aston Villa uh, continuing their winning start with a 2-0 win over Leicester. Rachel Daly scoring a third-minute penalty before Emily Gilnick added an 86th-minute late-on goal. I, I love Villa under Carla Ward anyway. Uh, and I know it's their only the opening two games of the season, but they just seem really comfortable, Marva. 
Yeah, completely. I think their their additions to to their squad have been um, really really beneficial. I think Dali, obviously, as an Everton fan, I'm sad to have seen her go. Um, she was involved again um, in in the second goal, um, and yeah, they just look like. I think sometimes you get these teams who get an influx of of players that that seem like oh they're great signings and then it never really pans out. Um, but I think this was their first con- two consecutive wins in sort of ever in the WSL or something like that or in the last few years, um, which just shows you how it's never just it hasn't quite come together for them yet. Um, but these signings seems to be doing it for them, which is good to see for them. I've only just realised Darley and Daly. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? <laughs> I've only just realised. How exciting. It's a good job that they don't dally, isn't it? The pair of them. Oh, dear, 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 dear. Headline writer's dream. Uh, <laughs> uh, part of what makes this Villa side so exciting, Jesse, though, it, it's kind of this blend of younger and older players that they have, I think. Yeah, I think this is something that's going to be really interesting to see them develop over the season. And the reason why Villa's recruitment feels so sensible in, in that way, you know, they've got... Players who are at the club, Maz Pacheco, Laura Blinkhilda Brown, Fred Gregory as well as like impressed in the past. And then, you know, like bringing in Anna Patton on loan. And that's like, a, I think, a really cool core of under 23-ish type players. But then to bring in the experience of a Rachel Daly, a Kenza Daly and Rachel Corsi as well, I guess, is another name who who's kind of been there and done it. And And to meld them together, not only are you taking your younger players up to a new level, I think, I think sometimes it gives those older players like a bit of fresh life too. That they're, you know, like, and it feels just, I think, creates this really exciting mix. And, you know, I know Carla Ward kind of said after the City result that the most important thing was was to go and then get the result against Leicester, you know, to, to kind of make the City win worth it. And I, and I think it does say a lot about the team that, you know, Leicester are proving not to necessarily be as easy to break down as I think some people might have expected. And this does feel like a game where last year maybe Aston Villa wouldn't have found that breakthrough and to get it obviously I guess so early um from from the daily penalty after Kirsty Hansen was was brought down helps but you know to then kind of be able to hold on stay secure yeah I think it's a it's a really exciting mix of players and I guess again also credit to um another club who who you know took their time I guess to get to the top division of, of women's football and, and maybe get overlooked in in that kind of mix because we do talk about Tottenham and their investment or United in their investment but have kind of quietly been been building something that feels like it's going in a really positive direction. Yeah I think it's a really positive direction for the league in general actually that it feels much more competitive because you know we talked in the preview pod about Bryson and Reading both looking as if they're going to finish mid-table again like they have done before. Brighton obviously had a fantastic start to last season, but looking at Leicester's strengths, Susie, must be a little bit of a worry for both Brighton and, and Reading in many ways because they looked a little bit accident-prone, I think is is fair to say, in that 2-1 win uh, for Brighton at the Amex. Um it felt as if you could maybe put a bit of Benny Hill music behind some of the calamitous things that were going on on the pitch. Yeah, it was calamitous. Um, and I mean, like, I think Reading can feel a little bit hard done by the, the decision to rule out the Anna Cooper's header for offside. Yes, there were a couple of players that, I mean, maybe you could argue they were interfering with play. I, I think it's a stretch. She was she was so miles onside at the back post. Uh, really like harsh for that not to be given it, it was just a weird game a little bit of a mess all round um Lee Gunmin 
was brilliant um and I like I thought that she didn't necessarily have a, a great season for Brighton last year I like a bit quiet I suppose so it's nice to see her sort of starting to assert her authority in the team a little bit more uh, and take control of things and be a bit more of a leader in that team you know she's got a huge amount of experience so that that's a positive but yeah just a real messy game with some not very nice decision making and it's great that we're in a situation where it's it's not easy to settle on a, a team that is definitely going to drop down that's for sure um you know you'd argue that both of these these two teams could be in contention for that um on the basis of the way teams like Villa and stuff are performing at the moment but they're both solid teams most of the time oh I thought you were gonna do this again they're both fine (laughs) I should have done shouldn't I I would have to severely object if Brighton and Reading had got the same review as as Chelsea. You say what you like about Chelsea, but there was a lot less running into each other and uh, leaving the ball for the opposition to run onto. Amazing. Just one of those days. Uh, One of those days today as well. Jesse Parker Humphreys, thank you for jumping in at the last minute. You were a superstar. Uh, Happy to have helped out. Marva, lovely to see you as always. Thanks for having me. Susie Rack, always a pleasure. Always. Let's go back to bed. (laughs) Unfortunately, I now have to go up to St George's Park for the afternoon for the England women's squad announcement because there are just a few things taking place in women's football over the next couple of weeks. Busy, busy, busy. Some WSL matches midweek as Chelsea face West Ham and Everton play Leicester before the Continental Cup group stage kicks off over the weekend. Then it is that small matter of a sold-out Wembley to watch the Lionesses take on the world champions USA. We will be back with you after the next round of WSL fixtures. That is on the 18th of October. The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly is produced by Lucy Oliver and Jesse Parker Humphreys. Music composition was by Laura Iredale. Our executive producer is Max Sanderson. This is The Guardian. 